0: Love Talk Radio.
1: I'm Patrick O'Heppernan in California. I'm co-hosting with my friend and colleague Chuck Morris in Boston, Massachusetts. We are broadcasting Monday through Friday, one PM to Cyber Station, one PM to three P. M. on CyberStation USA Network, Blog Talk Radio Network, and our radio affiliates. It's May 9, 2012, and we have a heck of a show today. We're going to talk about America's forgotten founders. I didn't even know there were any, but I guess there were. If they hadn't been forgotten, they would have known. And also we're going to talk <laughs> about the, uh, the assassination of uh, Gandhi and uh, what that means for us today. So it's going to be a great show. We are pushing the boundaries of radio. We're listening to voices from all sides of the issue of the day. Let me introduce you to my friend and colleague our co-host Chuck Morris. Hi Chuck. How are you, Patrick? Not bad, not not bad. Um, you know, p- pulling all these pulling all these things together is uh sometimes a rush. It was a little bit of a rush this morning uh because we had a as you know, obviously you were there, sure. we had a uh, an interview this morning, but uh not bad at all. I'm I'm enjoying this. I'm looking forward to our our two uh our two interviews today. Particularly uh the one about the, our our forgotten uh founders
2: is it i didn't get a book Patrick, on that
1: I, I didn't either, and I think we probably will get it you know the hour after the interview <laughs> yeah
2: i I look you know I like to read a good history book
1: yeah i, I know that uh and i'm uh, I'm sure that like we will we'll get it but um um it it should be quite interesting very very interesting right. well there have been a lot of uh things that happened last night last night was primary night uh, of course yes. the um North Carolina once again, for the third time, said that uh, gay people can't get married. Um, right. And they uh, well, can. The state just doesn't recognize it. The state, that's right. But they put it. They put it in their constitution this time. And of course, at the same time, they also said they're not going to recognize civil unions or give uh, state benefits to uh, people in civil unions. Uh, and the business community interestingly enough in that campaign the business community came out in opposition of the ballot measure saying that this is going to drive away creative businesses that uh, we're going to we're going to see uh, businesses that could locate here decide that, well maybe they prefer to go someplace else where there's a lot more creative people who are more tolerant so
2: businesses well, is
1: like to make a buck you know patrick yeah well that's what we talk about a lot the other a couple of other interesting things happened um the uh the primary was held in Wisconsin, and now we know who yep. the Democratic candidate is going to be for governor there.
2: The yes. same guy that ran against Scott Walker last time.
1: That's right. Uh, only this time there's a lot more enthusiasm going on, so we shall see. It's I think Scott's going to win. What?
2: I think Scott will, Scott will pull it out.
1: It's You know, it's 50-50 right now. Uh, nobody can really predict the... Uh, Walker's got lots and lots of money, uh, and the well, both uh, the opposition better. has lots and lots of people. So we shall see. Now no, they it both goes.
2: have a lot of money. There's money pouring into that state. I mean, it's uh, money is a big you know is pouring in on both sides. I think. Well, pretty much. Uh, well
1: according to the, F, the the last FPC report, and this was, of course 30 days um, ago, Scott Walker's raised five times as much money as uh, the the uh, Democratic opposition has, and 80 oh, uh, percent of his is from out of state.
2: Well, that's a big—it's a big national issue,
1: it's,
3: it's
2: and, probably and I think that if the Democrats lose it, it's going to be devastating—not uh, yep. just in Wisconsin, but nationally.
1: Yeah, no, it's, you're right; it'll it'll be bad. So uh, we shall see. And then a, 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 an odd thing happened in Colorado last night. The um, Colorado was uh, debating, or I should say, a let um, a piece of legislation was introduced in Colorado uh, legalizing civil unions. And this is the third year in a row it's been introduced, and it's been fought tooth and nail by the evangelical community there. It always loses in the legislature. This week uh, it actually passed the, uh, the Senate in Colorado, and it went to the House, and the, the, um, the evangelical anti-gay commu- um, forces descended upon the House um, Appropriations Committee where they thought they could kill it because it, it's Republican-dominated legislature, and the Appropriations Committee passed it out. And five Republicans said, let's join the 21st century, we're going to vote for it. The uh, Speaker of the House, who's in the pocket of the evangelicals, was so worried that with three hours left to go in the session, when he did his nose count and he saw that it was going to pass, he stopped the session and in doing so, he not only killed that bill, but 30 other bills, including a critical water supply bill that the farmers in uh, in Colorado were absolutely desperate for. So the battle over gay rights and civil unions is really heating up, and there's, apparently there's some collateral damage, and the collateral damage may be the farmers in colo- in Colorado. But Sounds like what some-
2: happened in Massachusetts with Tom Birmingham,
1: well, we we have, state uh, senator. Chuck- yeah. We have to take a quick break and then uh, welcome in our our listeners, and then uh, we'll talk about Massachusetts. Um, I'm Patrick O'Heppernan and I want to welcome our radio listeners from 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay and KSKQ-FM in Ashland, Oregon. Tampa, of course, is going to host the Republican National Convention, and Ashland, Oregon, always hosts the best Shakespeare festival in the country. I'm co-hosting today's edition of Fairness Radio from Los Angeles Chuck Morse, my co-host, is in Boston, and you can be here. You can join us, fairnessradio at com, fairnessradio at com, and also you can call us, 424-675-6806. After the show, check out our website, Fairness Radio, and don't forget we're on Facebook and Twitter. We've been talking about some of the, uh, the, the happenings last night, the primaries in uh, Wisconsin and uh, the... Uh, um, Ballot measure in um, New Hamp sorry not New Hampshire North Dakota uh, North Carolina and also the funny shenanigans that went on last night in the Colorado uh, state senate in which the uh, state house in which the speaker of the house uh, closed down the house so that it couldn't pass a, um, a bill legalizing uh, civil unions and Chuck you were about to tell us that something like that happened in Massachusetts.
2: Well, it reminds me of when in Massachusetts there was a, an initiative petition to to end gay marriage, which was signed by uh, huge numbers of people. I mean, it was probably three times what they needed to get it on the ballot. And the, uh, the state Senate president, Tom Birmingham, literally locked the door. <laughs> I mean, you know, they couldn't come in to submit it. I mean, and he had, like, guards keeping them out to the point where, the deadline was passed, and it did not get on the ballot. Oh my God! <laughs> those, those, but I mean, moving on to other um, primaries. Sure. Uh, I don't know if you you saw what happened in West Virginia.
1: No, I didn't. What happened?
2: Well, Obama beat. Uh, you know, uh, there was a, a challenge to Obama in the Democratic primary by a prisoner.
1: Oh right. Somebody, he's a held like in happened? federal
2: prison. He yeah. the, the prisoner got forty one percent.
4: <laughs> well, so I mean, we, just,
1: well, remember what I said uh, the other day that, that that there are there are X number of people in the country who would uh, vote for a corpse before they vote for President Obama, and I guess they'll vote but for But these are Democrats, Patrick.
2: This Democrats? is a Democratic. Yeah, this is a Democratic
1: primary. Okay. Well, the,
2: the prisoner ran as a Democrat. Huh.
1: So, Which meant that only Democrats could vote for him.
2: Yeah. Strange. I mean, is, and Mitt Romney, meanwhile, I think he carried you know, a, a huge victory in that state. Seventy percent, I think it is, in the Republican primary. Oh,
1: my God. This is a strange political. We're going to have fun this, this election term, aren't we, Well, I Bob? mean,
2: that that says something about Obama's popularity, Patrick. Well,
1: at least in West Virginia. It also says that that, that might have been a little bit of a a, a protest vote by pro- progressives who said, we don't like some of the things you did. Why didn't we get a public option? But we're going to vote for you in November. That no don't, I,
2: I don't think it was, Patrick, because there, there was some polling done and some interviews done of people who voted for Keith Judd, the prisoner, and they said, I don't want to vote for Obama because I don't like health care. I, I wouldn't vote for you. know, It seemed like more of a conservative backlash amongst Democrats.
1: Interesting. Well, we'll have, I'm sure Jim Messina is it. going to be in West Virginia really fast to find out what went on. Right. Uh, no, I didn't catch that. Uh, I yeah. I say, it's a strange political season. It's, uh, and at this point, I'm not making any predictions about anything.
2: And also Dick Luga lost in Indiana.
1: I saw that that may open and up a, a possible seat for Democrats there.
2: No, I think what it does is it revitalizes the so-called Tea Party. You know everyone says, "Oh, they're dead, they're gone," even though they won sixty five seats in in the House in in ten um It, it kind of shows that they're you know that conservative ideas are not in, in it by any means gone.
1: Well, what I meant about that is that the state I know, director, that the face a Democratic who won opponent. that no. one, um, he's on record as saying both um, Social Security and Medicare are unconstitutional, and somehow I don't think that's going to fly with the majority of voters in that state.
2: Although it flew with the people of Queens, New York, who elected <laughs> a Republican after he had been attacked with millions of dollars in ads, saying, oh, he's going to abolish Social Security. People didn't buy it. Well,
1: okay, we should... Did he, he did he say he was going to abolish Social Security?
2: No, oh,
1: but well, the fake uh, well, said he would.
2: Yeah, maybe he did, but I don't think he meant it. And you know, those are these kind of silly comments. Nobody, he's not going to abolish Social Security, and, and they're not going to get away with saying he did. He, well, even, he would even even like if he did to, say he has, it. I mean,
1: he has said that. He has said it is unconstitutional. If I'm elected, I want to abolish
2: it. Is that exactly what he said? Yeah. Can you give me the quote?
1: Um, I'll have to look back and get that. Yeah, look
2: here. look it up. I don't think he said he'd abolish he, it. He
1: also said uh, Medicare is unconstitutional. I'm sure the retired people are going to love that one.
2: Yeah, I, we'll see, Patrick. I need to see the quotes. I don't believe it.
1: Okay. All right. Um, so, but like I say, it's going to be a crazy season, and it's also going to be a, a very expensive season, and I'm sure that... I want to let all those campaigns out there know that we are a multi-partisan show. You can advertise for any candidate you want on our radio show. Isn't that right, Chuck?
2: That is correct. <laughs> Especially the billions of dollars that, uh, or not billions, but millions that apparently George Soros is about to spend
1: I know. on Democratic. I know. Maybe he should be to match David Koch.
2: Well, the, <laughs> the, the, I, no, I don't think Koch. I actually, I don't think Koch is. But uh, you might want to cultivate some of your left-wing billionaire you know, one-percenters.
1: Okay, and you cultivate your right-wing one-percenters, and maybe we'll become one-percenters.
2: Yeah, but I don't, I don't know if the right has any anybody like that. I mean, oh, I, don't, I, don't think the, I don't think the Kochs actually are going to do that. Oh, they might. On. They already and,
1: have. Come on, they already put $10 million in, into the campaign in, in Wisconsin through Americans for Prosperity. You know that.
2: No, I don't know about that. $10 million? I, yeah. I, I think that Americans for Prosperity is a group they helped found, just like Soros helped found MoveOn.org. But I don't know if they personally are putting in ten. I mean, I'm talking about a situation where George Soros has now said that he's personally going to be putting in $100 million. Good. I'm I, I fine. And, and I say, I, and I say, let's contact your left-wing support. Uh, network and see if they uh, obviously some of that money is going to go to, to ads. I would assume.
1: I I, I will believe me. I will. And, <laughs> and you do the same with your right wing network. Maybe maybe yeah. some of us ninety uh, nine percenters can actually profit from the election. Who knows?
2: Well, I think the media tends to, and so that's that's us.
1: Yes, that's that's us. We media is us. Well, we're going to um, um, be talking in just a minute to uh, somebody who uh, will let us know about how the. The country got founded before that there were uh, mass media campaigns and Facebook and and millions of dollars. I might be interested to ask him what uh, Benjamin Franklin might have thought of all this, because Benjamin Franklin was media too.
2: Of course, he started the uh, the Poor uh, Richard's Almanac.
1: That, that's right. Which is is that still in publication?
2: I don't know, but he was a great media figure. He was a printer. He was a publisher. Um, absolutely, one of America's media founders.
1: Well, why don't we take a uh, um, uh, a break, and when we come back, we're going to have a, uh, a guest with us. We're going to talk about the America's Forgotten Founders. So stay with us. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick.
0: I am one sure. Understand the mind of man wreaking havoc on the land Cannot kill eternity from what I see Take me back to the open sky, hold my strings loose Take me back to the open sea, do not confuse me Steady still, all creations is my home Take me back to the open sky Hold my strength, loosely. Take me back to the open sea Do not confuse me
1: That was Bones and All by Joanne Rand, and Joanne is going to be our guest on Music Friday this week, but right now you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and I uh, mistakenly said we're going to talk about America's forgotten founders, and we are not. We're going to do that in Hour 2. We're going to talk about uh, Mahatma Gandhi, and I want to, just, by, as a way of introducing this, uh, the, the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi is, is probably beyond ancient history for most Americans. But he was assassinated, and the forces that killed him are still in evidence in India and, to some extent, uh, in other countries around the world. And they include extreme nationalism, religious bigotry, fear, and politics. Well, our next guest, James Douglas, is a scholar of assassinations of world leaders, and he's author of many books, including JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters. He's released a new book. Gandhi and the Unspeakable, and it's a fascinating read. James, welcome to Fairness Fairness Radio.
5: Thank you very much, Patrick.
1: Uh, James, as I said, this is a fascinating read. It's a very compact book, but you've managed to really pack a lot of things into this book, and I really enjoyed it. It's one of those books you pick up and don't put down until you're done. But I suspect that most of our listeners were not around when Gandhi was assassinated. So could you give us a thumbnail of the book and who Gandhi was and maybe even talk a little bit about the South African part of his life?
5: Well, uh, Mohandas Gandhi was assassinated on January the 30th, 1948. That was five months after India won its independence from the British Empire By a nonviolent revolution led by uh, Gandhi, his trigger man was a Hindu nationalist, uh, Nathuram Godse. In the in the stories um, of this assassination, there are really two stories. There's one is is Gandhi's experiments with the power of nonviolence that began, as you mentioned, in uh, South Africa in terms of a movement for his people, his Indian people, and he uh, led that movement to a point where they succeeded uh, through um, tens of thousands of people going to prison in uh, achieving a kind of um, overcoming of uh, discriminatory laws in South Africa, and he moved on in uh, 1915 to India, and from then until his death in 48, led the movement for independence from Britain. The other story, however, is the counterforce to Gandhi, uh, which is one of terrorism, um, led by a man named Sabarkar, who was a very brilliant um, ideologist, uh, writer, a poet, and a leader of a different kind of force for independence in India. And his legacy um, continues today. Uh, he was behind, he was a mastermind behind Gandhi's assassination. There was also Indian government complicity in his assassination. And there was the beginning rise of a national security state uh, that surrounded Gandhi's assassination under Nehru and eventually his daughter Indira Gandhi.
1: Well, can you tell us uh, why was he killed?
5: He was killed uh, because he represented a kind of power um, that Godse, his trigger man, uh, the group of conspirators, Sarakar, and a significant uh, movement in India felt threatened by the power of nonviolence. This is a terrible paradox, that um, a power that they thought would, on the one hand, weaken India if it were embraced by its government and people, um, that is, a power of um, of not choosing um, weapons, but instead choosing a force of truth and love that thereby threatened because it had become so powerful within <laughs> india the uh the forces that wanted to do away with it now that's uh that's a bit of a contradiction but it's one that needs to be explored uh because uh we are in the midst of the same contradiction when we uh deal with questions of terrorism and violence in this country so when we talk about gandhi's assassination we're projecting um, elements of our own uh, conflicts.
1: Is there any kind of a a relationship, a spiritual relationship, or a similarity between um, today's terrorist and uh, uh, Savukar's Hindu nationalists? Uh, Is there a relationship between uh, Savukar and um, uh, al-Qaeda and its leader?
5: Well, sabarcar's <coughs> movement um became uh the government of India as we turned the uh into the uh 21st century the coalition government that took power in India was led by um people who have a direct connection with sabarcar uh, the series of um the family as they put it, of, of uh, groups which took power in 2000, uh, well, a couple of years before that, which, which had power as we as we moved into this century, are the direct legacy of Savarkar, and they have been trying to rehabilitate him ever since. He's got his picture in the parliament. Uh, his prison cell is a national monument. There's an airport named after him. So the primary assassin of Gandhi is venerated, today um uh, by huge powers in india um the relationship to al qaeda would also uh <laughs> that would that's that's talking about terrorism in general um mm-hmm. and terrorism in general uh spans a huge um uh a huge arc going ranging from al-Qaeda to our own government because we commit assassinations every day and those are regarded as terrorism by people in other parts of the world.
1: Interesting. Uh, Was there any connection between the partition of India and Gandhi's assassination that is the creation of Muslim Pakistan?
5: Uh, A direct uh, uh, connection because (coughs) Gandhi's um, uh, view from South Africa on, was that Hindu-Muslim unity was basic to any kind of uh, independence in India. Uh, He was profoundly against partition, and when uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the leader of the Muslim forces that created um, Pakistan, as he moved toward that um, step and as Gandhi's Congress party uh, accepted it, um, Gandhi went the other way and he said um, and acted for the last 18 months in every way he could to bring together the forces of Hindus and Muslims that were then um, at a point of um, uh, a huge genocidal conflict uh, which was killing um well at at the end it was it was on the verge of killing millions of people it but did. his yes but his assassination is what prevented that from going um to um even further extremes um than it did and it 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 stopped the violence in its tracks for a time um in 1948 through his through the gift of his life
1: um I, I want to introduce you to my uh, my co-host um, in just a second. I have one more question. Sure. Is there any connection between the assassination of Gandhi and the uh, assassination of JFK? Any kind of a spiritual connection? The same kinds of forces involved at all, or is there, are they totally unrelated events? Well,
5: the title of the two the two stories is uh, has a common uh, term: the unspeakable. which comes from Thomas Merton, uh, my friend and spiritual advisor. Uh, Thomas Merton wrote about a kind of systemic evil and uh, one that we're in denial of, one that we're in complicity with, and one that we don't want to acknowledge. Um, He wrote about that in the uh, 1960s in the midst of the assassinations of the sixties and JFK in particular. So the commonality I think is that uh we no more want to go to uh, an exploration of the truth behind Kennedy's assassination than the Indian people want to go to an exploration of the truth behind Gandhi's assassination. Um so it's it's in a in a similar realm of unspeakability that that kind of um evil which is so close to us that we we can't really deal with it. We can deal we can deal with Gandhi's assassination, that is to say, the people of the United States and the people of India can perhaps deal with JFK's assassination, but um not so easy when it's on top of us.
1: You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We're talking with uh, James Douglas about his new book, Gandhi and the the Unspeakable, and I'd like to introduce you to my co-host, Chuck Morse.
2: Thank you, Patrick, and thanks for joining us, James.
5: Oh, Uh, hi, Chuck. So glad to meet you.
2: You know, I'm about halfway through the book. It's very powerful, very moving. I didn't know a lot about Gandhi, Um, and um, I want to comment on your overall view of the nature of assassinations, these two in particular. And I always think that it 's appropriate to assume that there's a conspiracy whenever someone in a powerful position of influence, whether it be in government or culture is assassinated or dies under mysterious circumstances. You have to ask who wanted to get rid of this person and why yes. um, but but as far as Gandhi goes, I think it's really amazing and very powerful the way he did engage in the nonviolent opposition to the powerful authoritarian governments first in. South Africa, and then the British in uh, in India. And I think it absolutely did inspire Martin Luther King to be a nonviolent um, advocate, because he knew that his cause was right, and he knew that the best way to go about bringing it about <clears throat> was through nonviolence. It also reminds me of a fictional novel written by Ayn Rand, that being Atlas Shrugged, where the characters in her novel... They, the government becomes very powerful. It starts confiscating their property and their businesses and their wealth, and it starts putting in really, really oppressive regulations. And the uh, the business people involved decide to oppose it by simply not cooperating and by dropping out, into the point where they actually all leave the society. The society implodes upon itself, and they form a new society called Atlantis.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so it, 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 I don't know if that's if she was influenced by Gandhi, but it has that same feel to me. And it's a great, great cause. I mean, civil disobedience, you know, when a law is passed that is oppressive or is demanding of people's freedom, you know, we're inspired by people like Gandhi and I think by Jesus to stand up to that power and say, no, thank you. You know, probably the first civil disobedience act was when Jesus stood up to Pilate and said, um, I don't answer to you, I answer to a higher authority. I think that kind of set the the wheels in motion for um, people to uh, stand up to the authoritarian state. Um, what, what, what do you think?
5: Well, I think Jesus was indeed um, an inspiration to Gandhi. um certainly is to me. <laughs> yeah. I, be- I begin with Jesus. And Gandhi... Um, as 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 you'll learn when you get to um his meditations on Jesus um particularly on a uh ship that was returning from London to India he was asked by uh his christian friends on the on the boat to uh reflect with them on Jesus on christmas day when they were with Gandhi and Gandhi declined at first saying he wasn't a Christian but they said what well, we want to hear what you say have to say about Jesus so he just launched into this incredible um sermon
0: <laughs> homily
5: on the meaning of Jesus and it's all summed up for me in one sentence he said living Christ means a living cross without it life is a living death. And he embodied, I mean Gandhi, as a follower of Jesus, uh without being a Christian, he lived out that statement of living the cross as perhaps um hardly any other person has um even the greatest Christians have have hardly gone to the uh depths that that Gandhi did in living out the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount and the cross of Jesus. Yeah,
2: that does appear to be. I mean, you know, it's really based on your book. And again, I'm just beginning to learn about Gandhi, and I don't know a lot about um, Indian history. Um, you make an assertion in the beginning of the book that you think that Kennedy, and you wrote a book about the Kennedy assassination, that he had been assassinated because he did not go to, he did not enter into a a nuclear war with the Soviet Union during the uh, mi- missile crisis, and that there were people who were angry about that, and they took revenge about a year later. Yeah, that to me seems like an incredible statement. Um, it can is. You, it uh, can you can you you know, furnish some proof of that?
5: When John F. Kennedy uh, was in the depths of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, which he partly brought on himself through some of his policies and uh, jointly with Nikita Khrushchev, he was faced, um, and we have all of this in uh, tape recordings, in uh, recorded conversations between him and his National Security Council and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was faced with um, uh, an ultimatum, basically, from his his advisors that he had, and I mean the the, uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff in particular, he had to invade Cuba, and he was under enormous pressure, and he was losing control of his government. This is all documented in my book. Um, At that point, he reached out to his enemy, Nikita Khrushchev, and said, I need your help. Um, He did this through a secret meeting between uh, Robert Kennedy his brother and his um, uh, assistant in the in the government, as the uh, um, as his his legal representative, he he reached out to Khrushchev um, through Dobrynin, his representative in Washington D.C., and said he needed Khrushchev's help to get out of that situation. And Khrushchev immediately announced that he would withdraw his missiles from Cuba after he he advised uh, or he turned to his. His adviser his major military adviser said, "We need to let Kennedy know that we have to help him, and at that point, the whole Cold War turned upside down, and Kennedy and Khrushchev became closer to each other than either was to his own national security state. This is heavily heavily documented
2: well that that is documented, but i don't know if therefore one can conclude that people who wanted to confront Castro uh, and uh, Khrushchev that they wanted to have a nuclear war and I don't think that it. therefore we should conclude that they actually assassinated Kennedy because he decided to not go that route
5: I mean I well, just think it's
2: a little bit of a stretch that's all
5: Well o- only if you follow the, uh, the documentation and the plot and um, I don't know if we want to go too extensively into John F. Kennedy's assassination uh, right now but the uh, the plot, which involved a man who was under the um, Central Intelligence Agency, Lee Harvey Oswald, and which involved a previous attempt to kill Kennedy in um, Chicago on November 3rd, which had exactly the same nature of the plot as the one in Dallas, all of which was covered up and which is heavily documented in the book. If we get into those things, then we see that John F. Kennedy's own national security state killed him, and they killed him precisely because he had turned toward the enemy. And that is the pattern of Jesus' statement of love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. In terms of Gandhi, that doesn't mean any kind of sentimental love. It means recognize an element of truth in your enemy. And Kennedy and Khrushchev Mutually, I, I certainly Khrushchev, as much as Kennedy, mutually recognized an element of truth in the other, and that unless they took steps toward peace, the world would be destroyed by a nuclear war. And they did so, and one of them lost his life, and the other lost his power in the in the following year because his um, his partner in peace had already gone. I right. mean, uh, yeah. Khrushchev lost his power.
2: Right. No, I mean, look, it's an interesting theory, and I think that you're right to point to some CIA uh, elements and some mafia elements and all of that that kind of thing, and that Oswald had been a Soviet figure as well, and there might have been some connection to their infrastructure. And it's just one of these fascinating and murky sorts of no, situations. It's not,
5: it, it's not murky. It's absolutely clear from the point in the... Um, the um, Bay of Pigs, when, when Kennedy said, I want to splinter the CIA in a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. Right. From that point until uh, November 22, 1963, there is a straight line, a direct line. It is not murky at all.
2: And also I think it's, uh, and and look, I think that the CIA was dominated by what we might call the the good old boy club, the Eastern Seaboard Liberal Establishment is what I would call it and that uh in a sense that he was assassinated for the same reason that a lot of people have been assassinated in history, and that is that uh in, in the broad sense, you're right, he stood up to various powers that had an interest in getting rid of him
5: and uh well, i i it's uh, yep yeah. yes, but in in this particular case um this was the most dangerous moment in human history up to that time. And for the teaching of Jesus to be followed by the President of the United States and by the head of the Soviet Union, that is to recognize that unless we love our enemies, we're going to be destroyed. That's the teaching of, of Jesus in his parables, as well as in the cross and resurrection. It's the heart of Jesus' teaching. For that to have happened at the most dangerous point in history, is an extraordinary right. lesson for us to deal with. And Gandhi uh, was dealing with it before that happened. He was dealing with it directly from the Gospels, and he did so in India in a way that was transforming. By the way, I live next to the railroad tracks. <laughs> you can hear the train in the background. And that's that's a symbol of the power that's going to run right over us, the power of violence, unless we... Uh, Draw instead from Gandhi's teaching of truth. Okay, I want well, to just ask one more thing.
1: Is, is going to run right over us because we have to take a quick break. Can you stay okay. for a few minutes? We have a lot of uh, sure. Okay, sure. We're going to take a quick break here. Oh, wonderful. Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Block Talk Radio Network, Cyber Station USA, and our radio affiliates. And we're talking about Gandhi and the Unspeakable, his final experiment of truth, a new book out by uh, James Douglas. And it's a fascinating look at Gandhi. And we have a lot of emails here. And just let me remind everybody that they can uh, communicate with us by phone, 424 675 6806. Or by email, fairnessradio at gmail.com. And this segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com, your source of information to manage your health and your body without expensive or toxic drugs. Uh, Chuck, I'm going to take some of these emails here and then uh, maybe get back to our, our, uh, our earlier discussion. Uh, okay. G. V. Rama wants to know Does Gandhi's philosophy still popular in India.
5: We just had a retreat with um perhaps the person who embodies Gandhi's philosophy most today a man named Narayan Desai 87 years old who is the son of Mahadev Desai who was Gandhi's secretary who died in prison with Gandhi to to be with Narayan Desai for three days as we were here in Birmingham, Alabama 90 peace activists from around the country is to uh, walk with Gandhi as many people still do in India at the same time as realizing that India is uh, at the same time dominated by forces that are totally antithetical to Gandhi so I would say it's not a yes or a no it's a both <laughs> and uh, uh, the, the government is clearly not Gandhian um, but there are profound movements in India that are
1: well actually we have uh, an email here that, that asks that that question it's from Larry Sokolow in Dallas and he wants to know why has Gandhi remained so popular in the United States 80 years later
5: we don't know enough about him <laughs> If we knew more about Gandhi, he uh, would uh, not be so popular because he would make demands upon us that are so profound, we would have to change our whole way of life. And that's my answer to that. And I would say the same thing about Dr. Martin Luther King. If we knew him rather than the sentimentalized version that we have derived from one or two speeches of his. We would like him uh considerably less than than we do in our images of him,
1: and that's probably true of most historical figures uh,
5: <laughs> yes <laughs> uh,
1: sahal uh six fourteen uh six fourteen at yahoo wants to know or says uh the Congress party has always been corrupt; it does not mirror Gandhi's teachings. Do you agree with him um I do. I
5: I also believe that there are people within the Congress Party who are very good people And at the time of of, uh, independence, um, when the Congress Party uh, basically took power in India They were led by uh, Gandhi's two closest, in some sense, disciples, Nehru and Patel But once you move from uh, Gandhi's ashram, um, (laughs) um, well, they weren't in Gandhi's ashram really at the end, end, but once you move from that inner circle of Gandhi into a government whose institutions are derived from the British Empire, (laughs) just handing them over to India, you move into an entirely different realm of decision-making. And Gandhi declined to do that, and he retained power and those who accepted power lost it.
1: Well, there's a. a since you brought up Nehru's, I'll uh, read you a, a question from uh, Howard Masters in Louisville, and he wants to know what was the relationship between the Nehru family and Gandhi.
5: Very close. Um, uh, when you say family, um, <clears throat> that of course means his father, and um, and his his daughter who would become prime minister of india uh after him and um all of these people were very close to gandhi but um uh, in a very ambivalent sense when it comes to nehru and uh and uh indira gandhi both they both revered gandhi and they took a different path and The path of industrialization, the path of a national security state, the path of supporting nuclear power and weapons developments, as even Nehru himself did, um, this is not the path of Gandhi.
1: I imagine not. Um, James V.K. Singh in Palo Alto wants to know, how would your guest characterize Hindu-Muslim relations today and... Where does he think Sikhs stand in India today?
5: I think Hindu Muslim relations today are um tense but they aren't as tense as they were um maybe ten years or so ago. And as for you know, the Sikh Sikh people, um I can't say i i haven't been in india for decades and as much as i've tried to understand from studying the situation i don't want to um make statements that i can't back up in any sense so i really i would really decline to speak um uh, on you know hindu muslim sikh um triangular uh conflicts at this point
1: you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We're talking to uh, James Douglas, uh, author of the new book Gandhi and the Unspeakable: His Final Experiment with Truth. And and uh, Chuck, I think you were you had a, a line of questioning going regarding uh, JFK. You want to continue that? No, I want to get.
2: I want to make an observation about modern India. And again, I don't know a lot about it, but it seems to me that. Um, Modern India is going in the right direction in that they've embraced positive aspects of nationalism. They've got a free market economy. They have more uh, wealth in the hands of the private individuals. They've got a a system that is more peaceful, uh, more coexisting. Um, It seems to me that, um, you know, I I don't know where Gandhi was on those issues, but they're moving in the right direction. I want to ask you about um your comment that the United States is involved in assassinations today, and yeah. that there's this sort of ongoing conspiracy what What's that all about?
5: It's about our uh, national security policy uh of using drones and the kind of team that carried out the assassination of Osama bin Laden. We mm-hmm. used those We used those teams either on the ground or from drones um, continuously, uh, day after day. Um, that's a part of our public policy. And those well, are, James, that would, those, well, those that would kind of beg the question, which
2: is, what would be your prescription? And do you think there's a Gandhian prescription, as it were, uh, in terms of confronting the uh, radical Islamic infrastructure?
5: Or should, we, or should we confront it at all? We should confront it through the force of truth, which means confronting our own government equally with the uh, radical Islamic forces that you speak of our government is responsible for assassinations every day of the year and just as um, uh, people who are involved in sectarian violence from the other side are involved in, in attempting assassinations far less successfully than we do um, this power of truth, resisting that through nonviolent means is always available. So, for example, going to um, Iraq, going to Afghanistan, going to Pakistan is possible through people who believe in nonviolence, in reconciliation, and in justice. Uh, that's the primary factor in all of these elements. So, um the Christian peacemaker teams, um, which are carrying out those activities in all of those areas, um, are basic, I think, to a different kind of attitude uh, of nonviolent resistance
2: well then in other words, you seem to be a pacifist, you seem to be suggesting that the best approach to Islamic terrorism is to do nothing, to sit on our hands and not to engage in uh, not to engage them in the field of battle, and I think indirectly you seem to be blaming us for the Islamic terrorism itself.
5: Well, I do blame us in the sense of I accept responsibility and believe that we should all accept responsibility for um, all of the major conflicts existing today in terms of international relations. We are the most powerful country in the history of the world. Gandhi was suggesting that there is a force... Far more powerful than that. That is um, what uh, Dr. King called the arc of the universe, bending, bends long, but it bends toward justice. And that power of nonviolence can overcome anything, including the power of the greatest empire in the history of the world, namely our own. (laughs) And our own own empire can be be overcome through nonviolent resistance, and I believe that that will occur. But... I would hope that the power of nonviolence can create, in our midst, uh, a power of reconciliation between Hindus and Muslims, and that would mean our living with Muslims, our seeing through Muslim eyes, and our going to the, the points of greatest suffering today in the world, which is especially appropriate in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and for that matter, um um elements of, of of india itself today
2: well i mean specifically on the issue of islamic terrorism you seem to be saying that we are the, the locus of responsibility for that and um i i just i don't understand
5: how you can say that i mean um how, how you can make that charge well um i guess from from talking to people from being in these situations um I've been to Iraq a number of times. I've been—I was in Iraq at the time of um, the um, shock and awe attacks. I was under our own bombs. I felt that kind of terrorism from our uh, our own weapons, and I just felt—and um, by talking with people there—felt that the power of the United States of America, when you are under it is the most uh, terrifying force in the world, and I can understand why people react to it with their own forms of terrorism. Terrorism creates terrorism. Our terrorism from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which I think um, were the greatest acts of terrorism up to that point in history, have created the power of the national security state. The alternative to that is nonviolence, nonviolent resistance, and embodying in your own life a willingness to accept suffering and death, be it at the hands of Americans, Muslims, Hindus, whoever, right. the, whole, the whole circumference of, of, uh, of, of uh, violence, we have to resist and we have to accept death rather than uh, retaliate.
2: Well, James, I just want to say that I mean, first of all, I mean, you're, you're, um, I can, I understand that you're, were against against um, deposing Saddam Hussein. That's a position that many people. take. No, I,
5: I was not against deposing Saddam Hussein. I was okay. in favor of deposing Saddam Hussein through nonviolent resistance. Okay. And I believe, right. I believe strongly that that would have occurred had we not undertaken shock and awe. Had all right. We, that's, look, that's a, we instead, that, we that's a reasonable that's a reasonable position
2: to take, James. But yeah. I mean, to, to suggest that, uh, you know, and you could also say that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were not appropriate. Uh, you know, there was it troubles all Americans that that that's how World War II had a, had to a, be brought to an end. But you, you know, I think that the bigger atrocities of, of the 20th century were conducted by by the Nazi socialists and by the Soviet communists against their own people. And that was not one that um, involved, um, I mean, they both were involved with aggressive wars around the world, but they put millions and millions of their own people to death in their their collectivist experiments. And um, to my way of thinking, that's absolutely unjust. And it's not comparable to anything the United States has done or would do.
5: Well, I agree with you that it was absolutely unjust. And I believe that we made a terrible mistake in mirroring that kind of activity by Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and we've created out of it the same kind of problems and that's okay. why um that's why Gandhi responded to Vincent Sheehan the way he did at a point in the in the story that you haven't quite gotten to yet when Vincent Sheehan went over to, uh, a great u uh, s journalist went over to see sure. Gandhi anticipating his death. He received a response from Gandhi as to why the terrible arms race had arisen from the Second World War, which was a just cause, as, as Sheehan saw, just as you just put it. And Gandhi said, well, your end was just, but your means were not. Once we choose those kinds of means, we are caught up in a, in a cycle and a circle that has continued right up to the present.
2: Well, I, I don't think that it was a just war. I think that it was a war of aggression on the part of the Nazi socialists, and also uh, the, the the Cold War was on the part of the communist socialists.
5: Well, Gandhi Gandhi was trying to understand uh, Sheehan's point of view, which was that not that the Nazis were just, but that the United States was just, and he was he was saying, well, your end may have been just. He was he was uh, he was. He was sympathizing with the point of view of of Roosevelt and Churchill, who was his adversary, and saying, your end may have been just in resisting the Nazis, but your means were not. And as a result, that created the nuclear arms race. But he had an alternative, and that alternative was what he chose um, a couple of days after Vincent Sheehan spoke with him, and that was bowing to the man who was shooting at him with love and accepting those bullets.
2: Well, you know, your position
5: is, is well taken. I mean, there were
2: certainly a lot of Americans who were against entering World War II. They called themselves America First and uh, absolutely were against World War I, which was senseless. I don't think this country should have ever gotten involved in it. And, uh, but I think that the difference, perhaps, is that there's an understanding that the best way to reduce war is through a position of strength and the ability to defend oneself.
5: James, we well, have one Gandhi, minute left. Gandhi's term for nonviolence was truth force, love force, soul force, satyagraha and satyagraha is the is is literally adhering to the truth. And in those synonyms for truth force, love force, soul force, for satyagraha The point that's common to all of them is force. Nonviolence is the most powerful force in the universe, the power of truth. That is a relatively unexplored power, but is coming into greater and greater um, adherence in the world. The Arab Mm -hmm. Spring is an example of many people choosing much of that power, although it is equivalent to, um, it is it, it is equivocal in some instances, but the Arab world has moved far beyond Al Qaeda. They are choosing powers of nonviolence in in many parts of that world today. James,
1: we James, we need we to need to move in then. the
5: same direction.
1: I hate to interrupt you, but we have the power of the clock, which we can't stop, <laughs> and we're out of time. This has been fascinating, uh, James. Thank you so thank much. You, for thank Very you, James.
5: Thank you. I
1: love talking with both of you. You
5: you have a great program, and I hope that uh, you continue to have conversations of this, of this type, as I'm sure you will. Peace be with you both. We thank do you, every thank day, you. and
1: thank you. That was thank James you. Douglas. Uh, the book is Gandhi and the Unspeakable from Orbis Books. It's available at Amazon.com and at bookstores everywhere. That's uh, James, Gandhi, and the Unspeakable. And that's it for Hour 1, but uh, don't go away. We're going to be back after the news and your comments for a look at what happened to the nation. And also we're going to talk about America's forgotten founders. There were a lot more founders of America than uh, James Madison and George Washington and Ben Franklin. We're going to hear about them and how they really affected your life, our lives today. So stay tuned. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. On the Block Talk Radio Network, on CyberStationUSA.com, and on our radio affiliates, we're going to we're going to leave you this hour, but we'll be right back. And meanwhile, we're going to play a little song, uh, Streets Today, from a musician who's going to be with us uh, Friday. Don't go away.
0: Going down a busy street when blowing her white hair And she's carrying her Christmas tree I see you, yeah Man on the street corner with an iPod and a sign My kid says, where'd you get the money for that, mister? You can't have mine I see you, yeah Images and snatches of the streets today Leave me laughing and crying Newspaper, flat against his face He leans his head into it Snoring at the boring human race He sits on the curb we dare not disturb his peace A guy in ragged clothes He's emaciated, he's frail He's tall and he stalks the streets Talking to his feet with his arms aflail He walks alone without a heart or home
2: And And
1: that was Joanne Rand with Streets of Today, and Joanne is going to be with us this Friday on Music Friday. But right now, you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We're back for hour two. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm co-hosting with Chuck Morris. He's in Boston. It's May 9th, two thousand twelve. And we are the only radio program in America that routinely listens to voices from all sides. We are pushing the boundaries of radio here. We broadcast Monday through Friday from 1 to 3 Eastern on CyberStationUSA.com, BlogTalkRadio.com, and our radio affiliates. And for those of you who emailed me over the, over the break, our major studios are in Boston. They're actually just a little bit outside of Boston in Quincy, Massachusetts. And then we have studios in Los Angeles. So we are geographically diverse. But we'd like to have you make us even more diverse. 424-675-6806 is our, is our email is our telephone number. You can also email us, fairnessradio at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. And our website is fairnessradio.com. Well, before we open up to a radio audience, they're in a news break right now. Let me introduce you to my friend and colleague, your co-host, Chuck Morris. Hi, Chuck. How are you, Patrick? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Um, uh, for those of you who just turned, tuned in, uh, in hour one, we uh, we had a wonderful, uh, at least I thought it was a, a wonderful guest who did a, a history of Gandhi's assassination, and I think you asked some pretty good questions there. You got into it, Chuck. I appreciated that.
2: Well, I I enjoyed the interview. I I agree with a lot of what he has to say. Um, you know, I, I'm not a pacifist, but uh, you know, my approach to the way to reduce war in for this country and the world is a little different than his. Um, the um, his analysis of the Kennedy assassination, I think, is technically very good. In that, you know, it, it, I think he's right when he, he draws in a a kind of a parallel between certain you know establishment. Figures in the CIA, a lot of the same people who tried to assassinate Roosevelt or who tried to overthrow Roosevelt. You might recall we did a, a show on that, you know, the the the, uh, the, the so-called Bankers' Plot, and um, and that they used mobsters and um, this kind of misguided communist by the name of Lee Harvey Oswald um, as their sort of foot soldiers. And uh, but I don't think that he's. I, I don't agree with him that their motivation was because we didn't go to a, a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. I don't think that's what they wanted. I mean, who knows? I think it's quite the opposite. Generally speaking, the establishment powers, as it were, they seek a convergence, or they sought back then, a convergence with the Soviet Union. Um, you could look at the, uh, you know, I have some information on that. It's a little bit much to get into right now, but... They didn't want nuclear war in the Soviet Union, I think that if anything, Kennedy was viewed as too much of a nationalist. Um, and also, Kennedy was not a pacifist. As you know, in the last year of his life, he was at, he was ratcheting up and escalating the war in Vietnam. And um, it's a myth that was put out by the Kennedy family that he, uh, in the aftermath of his death, that he would have de-escalated Vietnam. There's no evidence of that. He was escalating.
1: You know, I've, I've never thought um, of Kennedy as a pacifist. I agree with you on that.
2: Yeah, not at all. I mean, he, and he was a nationalist. I mean, do you know the, another little little wrinkle in the Kennedy story that, that is not widely known, and, I, and I'm not necessarily connecting it to the assassination, was that in 1962 Kennedy issued greenbacks into the economy.
1: Say that again. Which he, I
2: think he issued greenbacks. In other words, he issued Treasury currency, as opposed to going through the Federal Reserve and issuing Federal Reserve notes. He sure. issued interest-free greenbacks into the economy,
4: is, and um, uh,
1: that's constitutional.
2: Yes, of course it is. It's what it's what Lincoln did to help pay for the Civil War, and we oh. saw what happened to him. Now I'm not again <laughs> suggesting <laughs> that I'm not suggesting that this had something to do with his assassination, but. There were a lot of things that the Kennedys or Kennedy did that were very much – I mean, I think Kennedy really thought that he was president of the United States, and he really thought that as in that position he could do a lot of things that I think rubbed the establishment's nose the wrong way.
1: I'll be darned. Well, we've got to take a quick break and uh, let our um, our affiliates in, so we'll be right back. And it's time to welcome our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay and Bradenton, Florida, and KSKQ FM in Ashland, Oregon. And I hope to be in Tampa Bay this summer for the Republican National Convention. I'm on their mailing list. Maybe they'll give us press credentials. And of course, in Ashland, Oregon, there's a great Shakespeare Festival, which I've been to a number of times and maybe again. So. Welcome to our listeners from those two great towns. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in California. I'm co-hosting with Chuck Morris in Boston. You can be part of the show. Join us by phone, 424-675-6806, or by email, fairnessradio at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out our website, fairnessradio.com. And also, speaking of websites to check out, our sponsor, our segment sponsor, pardon me, I have, I, I need our segment sponsor right now because it's Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com, and they provide information that you can use to manage your body, <clears throat> possibly your throat, um, without using toxic drugs or expensive drugs. Now, bartonpublishing.com is an information source. They don't sell pills. They don't sell cures. They don't guarantee that you're... Cancer is going to fall away, and you're going, to, you're going to get up out of your wheelchair. What they do sell, however, is information written by doctors and written by experts on everything from sore throats to acid reflux to you name it. And you can go to their website, www.bartonpublishing.com, and you can find a topic there that interests you, whether it's diabetes or a common cold. Click on that, and there you'll see the information that they have commissioned From experts in the field and from doctors, it's all the best you can get. And you can order it right there online, and you can use a coupon code, FAIRNESS. So when you order that information, you pay for it with your credit card. It downloads into your computer right then in front of you. You don't have to wait. You can get a hard copy if you want to, but you don't have to wait. It's right there in front of you. You can start taking care of your body with natural ingredients right away. And if you put in the coupon code FAIRNESS, you get an immediate, Right on the screen in front of you, 50% discount. How can you go wrong? The cost of information from Barton Publishing is less than the cost of a lot of pills that that are prescribed by your doctors these days. So that's Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com. Well, Chuck, I know you've used Barton Publishing, and I've used Barton Publishing, and I'm going to look up sore throats on Barton Publishing when we get off the show because apparently I need it, don't I? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean they have some excellent uh, products in, in terms of uh, literature, and uh, one of the things I like about Barton Publishing is that if you um, if you subscribe to one of their publications, and you, it's a cost like with, a, with our coupon, it only costs ten dollars, really around that to get one. You get a daily email from them, and uh, they have some excellent information. Today they sent me an email where they're talking about a product for women that helps women deal with thyroid imbalance which is a common problem for a lot of women who may have that and not know it. And it can lead to weight gain and and, uh, lethargic uh, feelings and whatnot. And uh, it's basically promoting a particular drink that helps improve the thyroid. So these are all good things. It's all natural. It's not extensive. It's it's, it's basically common sense uh, things you can get.
1: Well, I'm, uh, with the show's over, I'm definitely going right to their website and looking up sore throats because over the past couple of days I've gotten a little, little fog in my throat. Well, <clears> throat> as you can tell, we've been, um, we've been talking about, uh, things that happened in the news. And of course, one of the things that happened in the news, uh, is that, uh, uh Wisconsin had its, uh, its primary last night. They've selected a Democratic candidate and they're hurtling towards a June 5th recall election of, uh, the current uh, governor, Scott Walker, recent poll has come out, and this is, I think this is probably unique in political history, but there is no center left in Wisconsin. There are no undecided votes in Wisconsin. And it's 50 right. 50 right down the middle. So it's going to depend on who gets their people out. But I don't think I've ever seen an election in which there is nobody who doesn't have an opinion.
2: Well, I mean, the state's been is very mobilized, and you get national forces on both sides who are jumping into it, and the whole country's watching.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. So we and shall see.
1: We shall see. I say go, Scott. <laughs> and I say, yep, yeah, go, Scott, quickly, right out the door. Uh, but in right. any case, I think that uh, I really do – I'm going to look this up and see if there's ever been an election in which there is no undecided voters. I think uh, I'll check with Gallup on that one because I don't ever recall one. And you know the rule.
2: The rule always, No, I don't know about that either.
1: The rule has right. always been that you know you you keep your base. You uh, figure that there's always going to be your opposition is going to vote against you, and you you move to the center so you can get those undecided votes. And apparently, there's no undecided votes in 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 Wisconsin at all. So that's. And you're right. This is going to be the second most important election uh, that people are watching. Of course, it's in June, and the. The most important one is the presidential. That's in November, but it's uh, we're going through a very unique political system. And, and and I don't know. And Chuck, you're the historian here. Has there been a period in American um, political history in in which there have been so many contentious battles going on simultaneously? Sure, many.
2: And I think every election. It's called a peaceful revolution. Uh, <laughs> I don't think this election is any is particularly different. Um, the, the latest Rasmussen poll has um, has Romney up by six,
1: which yep. uh, is
2: outside the three the three point margin of error, yep, right. and the that's
1: today. Yeah, you know, and and that's something else that that has been happening too and, is that uh, in the presidential election, of course the polls have been going up and down, up and down. And of course, those are tracking polls; they don't mean that much every day. But I don't recall. Right. A poll in which it's been, or a period in which it's been that close that it has changed four or five points every day. I don't
2: see a, a change four or five points every day. Generally, the trend has been away from Obama. And no, uh, you know, no, he, uh, he had a little bit of a bump during the um, anniversary of Bin Laden, but it wasn't really a groundswell. I mean, I think he might have cracked fifty maybe for a day. No, but,
1: uh, I'm, I'm looking. I, I'm looking at it uh, right now at at a, at, a, at a track over the past uh, 60 days, and it has gone up and down, and up and down. Um, you're right. The uh, the general election poll has has uh, Romney up three. Um, the Massachusetts, and, well, I'm looking at states here. At the national election, it's also gone up and down, up and down. It hasn't been a trend. It's been pretty even.
2: Well, one of the one of the telling things also about not only this poll, but I think the Gallup. Is that Obama? Is that is Rom, Romney is way ahead in independent voters? He's got a considerable lead there.
1: Well, we'll have to work on that.
2: <laughs> yep, that's that's an issue. Now, obviously, here in Massachusetts, um, Obama is way ahead of Romney. But Massachusetts is Massachusetts. I think it's um, fifty to thirty-five or sixty to thirty-five. Um, but um, the it's a dead heat in terms of uh, Scott and um, and Lizzie Warren, uh, but that was a poll. I, I think that the poll, the last poll, was taken before the uh, Native American flap,
1: and before which, it, by it, the way, news got out is, that his his daughter is taking uh, the, the medical insurance yeah, that uh, he voted against. So you cut right, that that, that was
2: the Boston Globe just put that on there because they had to soften the blow. But the um, the Lizzie Warren story is still developing. The New York Times mentioned it yesterday which tells me something. I mean, it, that indicates that they're maybe, you know, ready to toss her under the bus, and they're trying to reduce the damage
1: now. And well, apparently she – well, well, let me just give you a quick well, overview. Well, well, Chuck, we have to take a break. We have a guest waiting, so we'll have to get into this after okay. afterwards, okay? Sure. Okay, here we go. We are back. It's Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on cyberstationusa.com, blogtalkradio.com, and our radio station affiliates around the country. And uh, no, for the emailers that we got, that was not any special music that we're going to be playing Friday. But Friday we are going to be playing the music of Joanne Rand. You've been hearing her music on our breaks, and she'll be with us on Music Friday. That's our music segment on Friday at 2.30 don't forget you can be part of the program, 424 You can also email in, uh, and that's fairnessradio at gmail.com, fairnessradio at gmail.com. And this segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com, your source of information on managing your body and your health without toxic drugs and using only natural ingredients. Well, we all know who Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and Ben Franklin are. They were the founders of our nation. But who were the other signers of the Constitution? Who were the other men and women who debated the Constitutional Convention? And what did they have to say about issues like slavery, separation of church and state, federal versus state governments? Well, Mark David Hall, the Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Political Science at George Fox University, has released a new book, on just who those men and some women are. They were Americans' Forgotten Founders, which is also the name of his book. Mark, welcome to Fairness Radio.
3: Yep.
1: Well, Mark, why were some founders forgotten and others remembered?
4: You know, that's a, that's a fantastic question. If you think about the ones we remember uh, a, a good number of them ended up being President of the United States. You have George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison. And I think our constitutional system is set up in such a way that um, the President is highlighted, and we tend to focus on Presidents, we tend to know Presidents. Even today, everyone in America knows about President Obama, but very few people probably can um, list some of the key legislatures, legislators in Congress. So I think that's a very important um, fact as well, we tend to remember the winners, and so people, if they weren't immediately supportive of the um, War of Independence, or particularly if they opposed the Constitution, um, we tend not to remember those folks. Um, I'll just give one other reason. There's still some others that we could look at, Uh, but one very practical one is the founders we remember tended to hoard their papers. They saved their papers so that scholars have a great deal to work with, whereas Other founders actually burned their papers or didn't uh, um, save them quite as carefully. And so there's just less to work with, and so scholars tend to to ignore them.
1: Well, it seems hard to believe that if you were part of the founding of a new nation, you'd burn your papers, but I guess some people didn't see it that that historically. Um, Right. Now, this book uh, focuses on uh, 10, uh, or I should say maybe the top 10 forgotten founders, and you profile them, you give us... Uh, Engaging short biographies And I should should say that This is the kind of book If you're a history buff Or a political scientist Or a political buff You want to keep on your desk Because it's a great reference When when you're asked by somebody What about this or that You can go to it And it's it's a great reference So it's more than just a good read It's also a reference book Um, Well I want to ask you Who were any of the founding fathers Whose contributions to our nations Were as important as, say, Jefferson or Adams
4: or Franklin? You know, that, that's a great question. And I, I, two jumped to mind. One guy I've just been working with quite a bit is Roger Sherman of Connecticut. Um, Sherman was the only guy who was involved in, in drafting and in ratifying um, all of the nation's key documents from that era, the Articles of Association, the um, Declaration of Rights. He was on the five-person committee that, that put the Declaration of Independence together. He was involved in the Constitutional Convention, one of the most important people there, and, and he helped frame the First Amendment. And so he was just there at every step of the way, um, having a tremendous influence. Uh, recently, a number of historians and political scientists have noted that really the Constitutional Convention can be viewed as a, a battle between James Madison and Roger Sherman, and Sherman actually won a great deal of this battle. So, you know, there's someone that um, we just tend not to, and most people. Probably know the name if they're um, well read in the era, but they probably couldn't say much about this guy. And yet he was critically important. But, like, to go back to our earlier conversation, um, he died fairly early in the New Republic, 1792, didn't become president, didn't leave a great deal of papers, and so history has just um, largely ignored him.
1: Yeah. Were there any women who were um, uh, involved in this?
4: There were certainly. Let me just real quickly tell you how we came up with our list. It's not a subjective list. We. uh, actually surveyed more than 100 academics who had written on the American founding. And we said, you tell us who the important forgotten founders are. And so they came back to us with a list of 72 um, people. That included Native Americans and African Americans and women. And then we took the top 30 vote-getters. And we um, sent this list of 30 back to the academics, and we said, now rank them. And so that's how we arrived at our ranking. And so in in the final analysis, um, there aren't any women on our top ten list. I found that a little surprising. I would have thought Abigail Adams um, would have made the list. She was uh, intimately involved with everything John Adams did, and really you can view that that founder. That wasn't true with all the founders, but it certainly was true with John Adams. And so I think she, um, she got credit for almost anything her husband did. Um, one, one possibility is that the academics didn't consider her to be forgotten anymore since she has um, recently played a big role in the McCulloch biography and the HBO series on Adams. So perhaps right. she was considered not to be a, a forgotten founder. Well,
1: what were the most contentious topics at the the Constitutional Convention that engaged, engaged the founders?
4: Probably the, the number one battle would be how powerful the new national government um, would, would be. Um, so, founders like uh, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and James Wilson wanted a tremendously powerful national government. The original Virginia plan had a plenary grant of power. That is, a national government would have the power to do whatever it wanted to do, and it could override a, a veto on state laws and this sort of thing. On the other side of the spectrum, of course, you have the Anti Federalists who were just scared to death of this sort of centralized Power and so both within the Constitutional Convention, but later in the ratifying Convention, they of course said we shouldn't ratify this Constitution because it's going to create this this large, powerful national government that's eventually going to become oppressive. Um, Roger Sherman was an important mid, middle position between these. He argued, for instance, that we should have a, a national government that's more powerful than the national government under the Articles of Confederation, but he said we should have a very limited national government so he fought strenuously for article one section eight that laid out a um, a, a very limited number of powers where the national government would be supreme but everything else would be left up to up to the states i would say that the power of the national government is probably the number one um, bone of contention at the constitutional convention and
1: and it still is of course Um, one of the uh... the forgotten founders actually wrote the words we the people you want to tell us about him
4: yeah, yeah, sure. That's um, Governor Morris, who was often uh, had the final um, draft of the Constitution and committed to him. Um, he's one of these uh, real interesting character, um, very influential. Spoke more in the Constitutional Convention than anyone else, and um, yeah, had a tremendous influence over, over the document.
1: And he also had a peg leg too, if
4: I recall. He did. He did. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, there was also a um, um, a, con- a forgotten founder who stood on his principles even though he knew that it would destroy his reputation. Who was that?
4: Oh, um, well, I, I think you're probably talking about John Dickinson. Yes. Okay. So yeah, John Dickinson. Dickinson um, now there's a there's a tremendously important forgotten founder he wrote more than 400 essays or newspaper articles or this sort of thing he's been called the penman of the revolution articulated very very well the um, constitutional grievances that the patriots had against great britain he was a member of the continental congress that debated the declaration of independence but in the final analysis he just felt he couldn't sign it he wanted to give more time to try to work this out and yet, once the nation committed itself, or the, the would-be nation committed itself, he um, joined the Pennsylvania militia as a private. So, this very prominent person who went on to become governor of, of Delaware, governor of Pennsylvania, um, but he at least began the war for independence as a private, and then fought the um, he fought the British. Even though he initially opposed the Declaration of Independence, um, went on to serve in the Constitutional Convention and with distinction in state politics. So. Um, that, that's probably a good example. Someone who left a lot of papers, but because he opposed the Declaration of Independence, he is um, not well known today.
1: I didn't realize that he managed to govern two states. That's that, that's that's quite a trick. I don't think. Yeah, that's quite a that trick, today. isn't it? Yeah. Um, separation of church and state w- was a, an issue. I know that was debated in the Constitutional um, Convention. Uh, who were some of the Forgotten founders who were on either side of that question Because we know who was on the, We we know the other founders who were on which side of that question But who were the forgotten founders
4: Yeah, that's a, that's a great um, point I, I've done some research in this with respect to Supreme Court opinions I've actually read through all the religious liberty and, and church state opinions And classified um, which founders were appealed to And as you might guess, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison Ruled the roost by far and away usually cited to support the strict separation of church and state. So they're very well uh, known and, and, and I think, you know, somewhat actively cited to support that, that position. Um it's kind of interesting if you think about it, as Thomas Jefferson was involved in drafting the Bill of Rights or the Constitution for that matter. Um on the other side of the of the spectrum you had people who actually liked establishments. They wanted establishments usually at the state level. I don't think anyone thought it would be a good idea or, or a practical idea to have a, a national church such as the church by
1: establishment state. you mean establishing a, a religion.
4: Right, right, to have a, a formal state church, much like today England still has the Church of England, which is the established church of, of that country. Um so you did have people that were advocates hey, yeah, Patrick Henry comes to mind as someone who um advocated for an establishment of sorts in Virginia. Um, Virginia, of course, did have the Anglican Church as the established church. After the War for Independence, that became pretty unpopular, as it was, of course, the uh, Church of England. And so Patrick Henry said, you know what would be fair is if we tax people to support the churches they attend. So if you're a Baptist, you'd be taxed to support the Baptist church. If you're an Anglican, the Anglican church. A Presbyterian, the Presbyterian church. And so that was a, a proposal he made, and that's where states tended to go in this era. If they didn't have an establishment, they moved to the system of plural or multiple establishments. Um, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, of course, fought uh, Patrick Henry, and they eventually won, won. So Virginia just got rid of uh, establishments of all, all sorts. Um, Roger Sherman is another founder who had no problem with established churches. He supported the um system they had in Connecticut, which, again, basically taxed you to support the church that you chose to attend.
1: Well, I imagine if there was a tax to support churches today, there would be an awful lot of people founding churches. But uh, let me uh, introduce you to my, uh, my co-host, Chuck Morris.
0: Hi, Chuck. Hey, How are you Patrick.
1: doing?
2: Very well, Mark. Um, I'm, I'm operating a little bit blindly here because I have not yet got a copy of your book. I'm sorry uh, to hear I'm that. i looking forward to that's okay. I'm looking forward to reading it. I like to read a history book thoroughly. Um, what comes to mind with regard to Forgotten Founding Fathers is and you made reference to it, would be the Anti Federalists, and I think that Patrick Henry was a big one and maybe that's why he's been forgotten.
4: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. We um came up with an that actually, one of the problems, we, we do have a couple of anti-federalists on our top 10, Patrick Henry being one, George Mason being another. I think one of the problems is the um, the, the votes were split among the, the anti-federalists. I'll, re- I'll read some of the ones that were suggested by different scholars. We have George Mason and Patrick Henry, which I mentioned, um, Richard Henry Lee, Mercy Otis Warren, Robert Yates, and a, um, a Melanchthon Smith. Luther Martin, John Taylor, so we have a bunch of different anti-federalists that were suggested. They tended to be very, um, uh, some of them anyway, very thoughtful critics of the Constitution, and of course they ended up being right. They their fear was that the um, national government would grow in power, that it wouldn't stay within the boundaries of Article I, Section 8, um, that it would use that the national government would eventually use um, provisions of the Constitution such as the Necessary and Proper Clause and the Commerce Clause to extend its reach into all elements of life, and that's exactly what has happened. Whether that's a good thing or a yep. bad, we can debate. But the Anti-Federalists were right about what would happen.
2: Right. I mean, they were quite prescient, and I think that the one positive, besides philosophically, the one practical positive result of their advocacy was the Bill of Rights, which was not going to be part of the original Constitution, and which was put in, I think, in 1789 as a compromise to uh, force several states to then sign the um, sign the document, if I'm not mistaken.
4: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. The um, anti-Farrolls lobbied very, very um, hard for that. And a number of states, no state actually ratified conditionally. So the states did ratify, but there was an implicit promise. So one of the first things okay. we'll do is add a Bill of Rights. And so you're exactly right. The first federal Congress in 1789 debated and proposed the uh, Bill of Rights and the states ratified it by 1791.
2: And I think that the Anti-Federalists were very much adherents to what we might call natural law, in that they they did not even want to see the Bill of Rights written down because they felt that by putting a law in writing, it would somehow restrict or define what is self-evident, what is what they contended a natural right. And... um, that's a principle that I think has continued
4: to run through, uh, not necessarily our government, but through our society. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. In, in fact, speaking of natural law, one of my favorite of these forgotten founders is James Wilson, a, um, a very well-educated attorney from, from Scotland, went to St. Andrews University, came over here, became America's really the maybe the second law professor. He gave a series of law lectures, at the University of Pennsylvania, what became the University of Pennsylvania. And this is um, one of the most theoretically interesting work that we have from the American founders. And he's a huge advocate of natural law. In fact, sometimes when you're reading him, he sounds like St. Thomas Aquinas talking about divine law and human law and how they're related and interrelated. And certainly believed that um, rights are based upon natural law. And he opposed the Bill of Rights. His fear was if we if we list out um, right, and then forget to list some of them that courts will assume that they aren't protected by the um, mm-hmm. by the Constitution,
1: and that, that
4: we could actually lose rights by listing them. So he he eventually lost that battle, uh, but on the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, he was appointed to the court and served there until 1798 when he died. Um, he and every justice on the court prior to John Marshall actually is literally on record saying that the U.S. Supreme Court could strike down an act of Congress if it violated natural law as well as the Constitution, which is kind of an interesting um, thing, which, of course, courts don't usually do, but at least the um, 18th century justices were convinced the court had that power.
2: Now, on the more sinister negative side, I think that one of our founding fathers that uh, very little is known about but is uh, actually a a villainous figure would be uh, Vice President Aaron Burr.
4: Yeah, no, I think that's right. He did not make our list, um, but yeah, villainous is, is a good way of um, uh, of uh, describing him. He was, of course, fairly important in the American founding, very important in the um, in Jefferson being elected in 1800. Um, but then, of course, he, when they were tied in the electoral college, it led to our first real constitutional crisis. And he ends up shooting Aaron Burr. So a a, a true villain, absolutely. But he did not make their list. He
2: he almost became president. The only reason he didn't was because Alexander Hamilton came down on the side of Jefferson, even though he didn't like Jefferson. And he understood that Jefferson was a patriot. And he felt that Burr was uh, conspiring with the British. Burr then shot Hamilton dead in cold blood. And then after that, he fled west and tried to create a separate uh, nation,
4: yeah, so a tremendously so, I mean, interesting person, but a bad person. I agree with
2: you. Yeah, fascinating story. Um, on, the, on the positive side, of course, you then have Alexander Hamilton, who I think is a very misunderstood founder, and he did believe in a strong national government. But I don't think it's comparable to suggest that he wanted a strong national government in the way that many people view it today. I mean, he wasn't interested in the nanny state. He wanted to... He, be- he believed that a strong government could be in place that would help people become more free, and that would help business, and would help, you know, make a more cohesive republic that uh, w- would result in um, in success. Would that be right?
4: Yeah, I think that's right. He he's not in our um, list because we considered him, and I think most people would consider him not to be a forgotten founder. Um, but I, I think you're right. One person who did make our list, and I have questions whether this person should be on the list or not, but it's John Marshall, the first, um, not the first, but the greatest Chief Justice we've ever had. Uh, the reason I'm not sure he should be on the list is really his um, his main contributions come after the American founding. But like Hamilton, I, I, I think you're exactly right. He's famous, of course, for, his, uh, among other things, his opinion in McCulloch versus Maryland, which said that the national government does indeed have the implied power to create a national bank, But here's where I think you're exactly right. I think both Marshall and Hamilton um, recognized that there are such a thing as implied powers. They wanted the national government to be involved with um, supporting manufacturing and encouraging manufacturing and having a national bank. But even these founders would not have said that the national government has a plenary grant of power, that it's free to do anything it wants, to pass legislation that touches on um, what we do in our homes, or what what schools teach, and, and this sort of thing. Right. So they would recognize it's still a government of limited limited powers.
2: Now, did any of the great Massachusetts patriots make the list? I'm particularly thinking of um, one of my favorites, that being Samuel Adams.
4: Samuel Adams, um, yeah, he, he did not make the list, but I agree with you that he should be on there. And I wonder if um, maybe some founders... Or some of the academics consider him not to be forgotten. Certainly, if you're um, making a list of, you know, if if you came up with a list in, say, 1780, of uh, who the most important American civic leaders are, Hamilton would be right up there, in the, or I'm sorry, Samuel Adams would be up there in the top three, I think, right? Just a, a critical force in, in pushing America towards independence. Um, but, of course, he then goes on to oppose the U.S. Constitution. He's an anti-federalist, which is perhaps one reason why history right. has not rem- remembered him as kindly. I'm to
1: suggest that he's not forgotten because he has a beer named after him. <laughs>
4: um, that might be we, very uh, we have to
1: take a, a quick break. We have lots of emails. A lot of people seem to know a lot about the founding fathers, or they want to know things. Can you stay for a few minutes after the break?
4: Sure, I'd be happy to.
1: Okay, we'll be we'll be break for about a minute. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and we'll be right back.
0: Women in a wheelchair going down a busy street. And blowing her white hair And she's carrying her Christmas tree I...
1: By Joanne Rann, and Joanne is going to be our featured musician on Music Friday this Friday at 2:30. But right now we're talking about the Forgotten Founders. We're talking to Mark Hall, and he's written a book by that name, America's Forgotten Founders. And a lot of you seem to be very interesting in uh, the founding fathers, and there are some others in there too. So why don't we get right to the, the emails here? Mark, uh, the first one is from George Rush, and he's in Maine, and he wants to know, why did Oliver Ellsworth not sign the Constitution after he worked in the Convention?
4: Yeah, I I, um, yeah, I, I believe he did. Oliver Ellsworth with Roger Sherman put together the, the um, Connecticut Compromise, of course. They, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure he signed it, went back to Connecticut, and was a um, leading advocate of its ratification.
1: Okay. Well, uh, George, you better check your history book again. Um, Alex Hazera in Austin wants to know, what can you tell us about Daniel of St. Thomas Jennifer? He signed the Constitution, but who was he?
4: Yeah, well, is that one of the um, more interesting names out of this era? I do not know much about him. I'm sorry to say, and he did not come on, uh, come in on our list. I believe he was from Maryland and the support of the Constitution, but said very little in the Constitutional Convention. So I'm afraid I don't have much there. So
1: he's forgotten because he didn't say much and he didn't leave any papers, probably.
4: Right, right.
1: Um, John Crop in St. Paul wants to know, did the founders clump into parties or factions that then became political parties?
4: You know that's a that's a wonderful question. I would say certainly there were um different interests that were represented in the um constitutional convention um you know significant debates, different economic interests different views on uh, on things like slavery um but I would say there weren't political parties um in the seventeen eighties into the seventeen nineties of course, you begin to have the formation of uh, real political parties the federalists coalesced into a party and the Democratic-Republicans coalesced into an opposition party initially, um, led by Madison and Jefferson particularly. Then eventually the um, Democratic-Republicans take over with the election of 1800, and into the 19th century the Federalists fade away. And so you do, by the um, 1820 or so, you have only really one political party, but then you have the rise of the Whig party, which eventually becomes the Republican Party. So we have a constitutional system that I think encourages um, there to be two parties and we're probably not going anywhere um, different from that
1: but but none of those parties actually started from factions within the constitutional convention
4: I think that's accurate to say yes sir
1: Okay, Um, M. Aziza and pardon me if I'm mispronouncing your name M but he's in New York and he wants to know were all of the founders immigrants and I imagine
4: they were, weren't they? Well, none of them were Native Americans, um, although some had been in America. Their ancestors had been in America a fairly long time. I'll mention um, on our list, we actually have some that had immigrated in their own lifetime. James Wilson had come over from Scotland, John Witherspoon from Scotland. Thomas Paine made our list. And it, you can question whether or not he should be counted as an American. He, of course, was born in England, raised in England, came over when he was involved in the War for Independence, um, but then he went back to Europe and um, fooled around with the French Revolution and then came back to America. So he might question his, his credentials. Alexander Hamilton, of course, immigrated within his lifetime. And that does say something about America. In um, European countries, you don't have people you know, that would come from other countries and could immediately succeed or succeed fairly rapidly in politics or law or this sort of thing. In America, um, you have a lot of room for an immigrant to come over and succeed within his or, or her lifetime.
1: Well, that's still uh, some, somewhat the case in, in Europe today because Europe is much more stratified, and uh, even today you have differences in customs and language from, from, say, Vienna to Western Austria or Northern Germany to Southern Germany, and um, we don't have that in this country, even though we do have some accent differences. Um, Stucky Symes in Georgia wants to know, what arguments did the Federalists use to win their case?
4: The um, well, there are, of course, different arguments about different things. Probably, if we go back to the issue of national power, the um, Federalists were very clear that this is a, a government of enumerated powers, that it's going to do only a few things that we really need a national government to do, international relations, um, military defense, post roads. And otherwise, the Federalists were quite insistent it's not going to be Um, passing laws dealing with education or crime or or these sorts of things, Um, those things would be left up to the states to the extent to which any civic authority would do it at all. Um, That's probably one of the greatest, again, the the greatest um, debate, and that was their answer. Even those federalists who initially argued for a plenary grant of power, people like Madison and Hamilton, um, when they were arguing for the Constitution, they emphasized that it's a government of limited powers.
1: And, and Chuck, I I assume you probably think that the – whoops, I think Chuck just uh, dropped off. He'll be right back with us. Um, Frank Sellers in Dallas wants to know, what forgotten fathers came from the southern states?
4: Forgotten founders from the southern states? Well, in our list of top ten, we have George Mason and Patrick Henry and John Marshall, all of Virginia. Um, John Dickinson is from Delaware, which um, is kind of a quasi-Southern state, right? It's south of the Mason-Dixon line. Um, it is interesting, of course, a lot of the famous founders are, of course, Southern gentlemen uh George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. And, um, you know, again, if you think about it in terms of, um, you know, are these folks representative of your average American or even your average American civic leader? They, they, they really aren't, which is one reason why it's important to expand the conversation beyond the elite five or six.
1: You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, Cyber Station USA, and our radio affiliates. We're talking with uh, Professor Mark Hall about his book, America's Forgotten Founders. And, uh, Chuck, I was just about to ask you about the Federalists when I noticed that you switched phones there. So... Um, uh, <clears throat> I, can I assume that you think that the Federalists won that argument, Chuck? Uh,
2: basically, no. I think it's always been a very good balance between two patriotic points of view. I mean, you've got the Jeffersonians and you've got the Hamiltonians, and um, generally, I, I think the best American tradition draws from both of those. You know, it's not a, we're not seeking a utopia here. It's not a we're not perfectibilists in America. We recognize that government is both an art. And of science, and that uh, that these are are interests that have to be balanced. That's what the whole
1: idea of balance of powers is all
4: about. Was that
1: one of the arguments in the Constitutional Convention? Did they recognize that, uh, Mark?
4: I I would say these um, are very practical statesmen. So a lot of the debates within the Constitutional Convention are are very practical. They aren't highly theoretical. Some of my favorite founders, um, both uh, John Dickinson and Roger Sherman explicitly say, um, you know, we're suspicious of theory, let's trust experience, let's draw from experience. Uh, Madison, in preparing for the Constitutional Convention, he, um, you know, did a lot of background research about government and how they've worked historically and what makes for a good one and a bad one. And so, yeah, I think um, they're very um, very well educated, generally, the ones that went to the Federal Convention, but also very practical, very pragmatic.
2: Well, I think that there was an overall agreement that government was not to be trusted, and I think that came from the experience of the American Revolution and the um the fiat power of the british monarchy and um and that uh, to the degrees to which government would be involved was something that was debated but the general theme was that uh that responsibility resided with the individual and that government needed to set up a uh, kind of a goal, the goalposts in which the individual
4: can then operate. You know, I, I think that's, right, and that's a critically important difference between um, what was going on in America and what the leading Enlightenment thinkers in that era were, were arguing. I think Americans, by and large, almost to a person, um, believe that, that humans are, to use an old-fashioned word, sinful, that um, even uh, Christians are, are struggling with the old man within and so we need to be very careful. We don't want to concentrate power. We want to have checks and balances, separation of powers, uh, bills of rights. Whereas in Europe, there was uh, among the radi- advocates of the radical enlightenment, there was a view that humans are perfectible, um, that we can trust educated people, that we should have a, a powerful government led by these elites um, that could then bring... Nations to a state of perfection. So yeah, very important difference between what was going on over there. Right, here, and I think
2: it's one that we, we we should not forget because I think that there's, the European influence is, is here today. Also, the uh, the founding fathers were anti-slavery. Even the slave owners like Jefferson and uh, and Washington. I mean, I think uh, the most vociferous anti-slave founding father was probably um, was probably Hamilton, and uh, I think Adams maybe less so. But generally speaking, they viewed slavery as an evil institution, but they weren't ready to pull the plug on it. They thought that it had to be done carefully and um, in, in, in stages. Would that be accurate?
4: I, I, I think that is accurate. Um, it certainly has statements of, of Jefferson that he seems to be troubled by slavery. It didn't seem to trouble him enough to cut back on his lavish lifestyle so he could free free slaves. But I will mention in our um, list of founders that, uh, on our list here, John Dickinson, did free his slaves. He was the largest slave owner in Delaware, and he freed them. Um, Roger Sherman crafted a, a gradual manumission statute for Connecticut. All, all of the northern states um, eliminated slavery between 1776 and 1808, um, oftentimes in a, in a gradual manner. But still, there's recognition that this institution goes against the basic principles of the Declaration of Independence. I, I think in the South, um, there's a recognition that there's something wrong with this, but it was such an entrenched part of the economy, and of course, sometimes people acting in self-interest will um, contend for something that they are maybe morally troubled by.
1: Mark, right. we we have a, a lot of emails just asking about individuals. So um, rather than read each one, let me just uh, tell you who they're asking about and if these people were founders. Um, Frederick Wilhelm von Steuben, was he a founder?
4: Yeah, you know that, that raises an interesting question. We we define founder as um, let me tell you our definition: the broad group of men and women who helped secure America's independence from Great Britain and, flash or helped establish the new constitutional republic and its political institutions. And so I think you could count him as a the founder then, because he came over and obviously helped get our military up to up to speed so that we could defeat the the, the British.
1: Okay, uh, Noah Webster.
4: That's an. He was involved in the American founding. He was a civic leader, um, not very prominent prior to um, 1800. Certainly much more prominent after 1800. But yeah, I think we could certainly count him as a as a founder.
1: And uh, Joseph Warren, ever heard of Joseph Warren? Was he, was he involved? His doctor, mm-hmm. Boston doctor, you bet. Oh, really? Okay.
4: Yeah, yeah, Boston doctor who was um, killed in the Battle of Bunker Hill, right, or Breed's Hill? Yeah, I, I believe. Yeah, he would count as a founder, although one would be hard-pressed to put him in this list of top influential founders.
2: Well, I think that one of the things about Warren that what is that he was a theoretician who um, published articles, and he influenced uh, the original Tea Party, and he had influence over a lot of the events at the time.
4: Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right.
2: Uh, another another name... founder, one of my favorites, would be
1: Chaim Solomon.
4: Oh, yeah, yeah, very important, Um, one of the key people raising money for the um, Continental Army.
1: Wasn't he a spy, too?
4: No, no, I'm not sure about that.
1: Okay. Uh, I think uh, of
4: him as a a, financier.
1: A couple more we have here is Mercy Otis Warren.
4: Uh, a very important patriot um, who then, like uh, a number of these folks, turned against the Constitution. She saw the uh, or thought the Constitution would, would be um, would lead to the creation of a national government that would become tyrannical. Wrote a very influential history of the um, of the American Revolution. She's one I, I would have imagined could have made this top ten list of forgotten founders. Obviously not active in civic life directly, but she wrote um, political essays that, that had influence. So. Yeah, I would say a very important, very interesting person.
1: And the and the last one that's come in is Comte de Rochambeau.
4: Rochambeau. Now I am. Yeah, I'm drawing a blank on that one. Sounds like someone I should know.
1: I, I don't know it either. So was um, uh, Mercy Otis Warren related to Dr. Joseph Warren?
4: You know, I believe they were. Um,
1: Maybe Chuck knows. I, I'm not sure.
4: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not let me mention real briefly you said several times that I wrote this book actually um my friend Gary Gregg and I Gary Gregg of the McConnell Institute of the University of louisville um were editors of the book, and so we put together the survey and did the survey and then we um wrote the introduction and conclusion, but we actually each of the um of the founders are profiled by someone who's a real expert on that founder, and so it's not um you know so it's a real real excellent solid work. Um a good easy way to get an overview of ten founders just reading through this book.
1: And and in looking at the emails and, and uh listening to uh to Chuck who knew about Dr. Warren, obviously there were a lot more founders than we learned about in the, in school. I had no idea that there were so many people involved in founding the United States. Just uh, you know, I've looked at the constitution and i you know, seen all those signatures but most of them I didn't recognize. You know, you recognize a couple of them, but the rest of them are just people lost in history. And, and obviously they're people who are not lost in history, but they're made, they made history. So this is, um, it's a wake-up, not a wake it's, it's very illuminating for me. And, I, and obviously uh, uh, many of our, our listeners know a little bit more about the history of the Constitution than, than I do.
4: Yeah, I do think it's important to expand the conversation. Um, there were a lot of people that, that were involved in this process. And if we focus just on the, the very leading lights, and again, I'm, I'm happy to concede that someone like George Washington is more important than anyone on this list. Um, but that doesn't mean the others are unimportant. Someone like the Roger Sherman, a James Wilson, a Patrick Henry, um, these were important guys who had an important influence. And if we only look at the Washingtons and Jeffersons and ignore these others, um, we, we miss a large part of the story.
1: Um, uh, Chuck, you um, you come from a state that was one of the original states. Obviously, I don't. Uh, is Are the, the founding members taught in your high school history classes uh, to a much greater degree than uh, what apparently mine were? Well, they were when I was in high school. I don't know about now.
2: But, um, you know, we have a lot of local favorites. And I mentioned uh, Samuel Adams. I think also James Otis was a – is considered a big light in his uh, his philosophical views. He was considered a little bit crazy, but he was uh, very influential in in the early goings on here. And also, John Hancock was uh, actually I think John Hancock was technically the first president of the United States, in that he was the first president of the um, of the Articles of Confederation.
4: Right, the kind con- of the um, of the Continental Congress that that passed the declaration, which is why he signed it first. Hey,
2: and, and his title was President of the United States.
4: Yeah, no, I think that's right.
3: Little,
4: yeah. yeah, and there's another example of a tremendously important um, founder that risked a lot. He actually is very wealthy, but he lost a lot of his wealth in the War for Independence. um a critically important political leader and um, gave tremendously from his own personal um, estate to support the War for Independence
2: right and Chaim and solomon is another example of that he uh, he died broke and he uh when washington was uh encamped in um in uh, outside of uh philadelphia uh in that very brutal winter he actually had people go to meet with Hiam solomon to to pick up money and to get to get cash and and it would happen to be yom kippur so they had to go into a synagogue and 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 reach him And he came outside the synagogue very quietly and very discreetly, and he
1: made the deal, and he gave them the money. And aren't we glad he did? Well, we're we're out of time, uh, Mark. I want to thank you for being with us today.
4: Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. All right, that's uh,
1: Professor Mark David Hall of George Fox University, and the book is America's. Founding, uh, <clears throat> America's Forgotten Founders, and it's available at Amazon.com, and it's available online and in brick-and-mortar bookstores nationwide. I highly recommend it, America's Founding Fathers. Well, that's it for, this, for, for today. You can tune in tomorrow for a conversation with author and activist uh, Mira Levinson and her provocative book, No Citizen Left Behind, about why public schools are the linchpin of our society. You've been listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick from the Blog Talk Radio Network, Cyber Station USA, and our affiliates. Visit our website at FairnessRadio.com. That's www.FairnessRadio.com for blogs, photos, petitions for causes you believe in. Don't forget to sign up for our Twitter feed and uh, like us on Facebook. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. And stay tuned for Mike Siegel on Cyber Station USA.